Welcome to the Essential Craftsman Podcast. I'm Nate, and I could not be more excited about this interview you're about to hear with Radigan Carter. Let me read you from his bio on his website. Radigan Carter is an individual investor who has spent 10 years working on five continents in the military, private sector, and government. He has extensive experience leading large multinational teams in the Middle East, Central Asia, and Africa. His current focus is combining his love of history and global trends with first-hand experience overseas to advance his goals of building generational wealth, living well, and helping others make themselves and their communities stronger. He has a civil engineering degree from a military college, an Investigator of the Year award as the case agent on a year-long undercover by-bust operation breaking up an international fraud ring, and earned a Heroism Award for leadership and actions during a Taliban attack in Afghanistan. Radigan first came onto my radar as a guest on the Hidden Forces podcast, where he had a really deep dive into his background, investment philosophy, and, and even geopolitics. And I was edge of my seat for that whole conversation. And I highly recommend you check that out. Now, I don't think you have to listen to that in order to enjoy this conversation, but I can basically almost guarantee you if you listen to this interview, you'll probably go find that one next because Radigan has some just fascinating stories to tell, and I'm sure he's only scratching the surface, but he, he tells a few of them in more detail in that interview, including how he was blown up in Afghanistan and including some of what it was like working in the Middle East building natural gas plants down to some very specific things about the type of people he's working with and and the the approach to work that some of those guys take in contrast to what we're used to here. Now our conversation here is about investing and it can be tough for for people like myself to know how to even approach it. I don't know enough to feel confident risking my money in what feels like a casino of wall street and, and yet holding on to it is dangerous as well because the 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 federal reserve inflates our money supply and our dollars lose value so you got to do something and i feel more positive and have a i think a much healthier outlook on investing after this conversation and i'm going to be continuing to follow radigan's work so without any further ado I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Radigan Carter. Can't thank you enough for taking time to come and talk to us. And I, I recommend it to the viewers that they listen to your interview on Hidden Forces, in particular, the one about your background, because I don't want to make you go through that in as much um, detail again. But I'm going to assume that most people haven't listened to that that whole interview. So maybe to start with, could you give us a, I take all the time you need, but the quick overview, maybe 10 minutes of just being a kid at home to where you're sitting right now and everything that's gone on in your life uh, over that time? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Nate. Um, so just quick background, grew up in Eastern Oregon and uh, did farm work, rough construction growing up. And then about 19, decided I didn't want to keep doing rough framing, so joined the Navy. Got a chance to spend quite a few years in Asia, being deployed uh, out of Japan. Did participate in the first deployment to OIF-1, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and then got out, went and got a civil engineering degree, kind of by mistake, at a military college. Uh, I showed up and they said, hey, civil engineering is a lot like rough construction. You'll love it. And it wasn't anything like rough construction, a whole lot of math, but uh, made it through, <laughs> failed 19 math classes along the way, but uh, pushed through, got the engineering degree, and then went back overseas and built natural gas plants in the Middle East for, I want to say four or five years. And then I had a uh, good friend that was killed in Afghanistan while I was over there. So I put in the paperwork, became, uh, went back into government service as a federal agent, went back overseas and spent, uh, 20, spent 27 or 29 months straight or pretty much straight, you know, one, uh, one tour after another in Afghanistan, and then finished up with a year in the Sudan. 
and then maybe about June 2018, I uh, put in my resignation paperwork from Sudan and uh, did a little bit of traveling and just kind of been really focusing on uh, managing my own investments since then. Well, that was definitely a, a quick overview and you skipped the part where you got blown up in Afghanistan. So um, maybe again, our listeners could get the full story there, but um, needless to say, it was an interesting uh, <laughs> career and that was maybe not even the only uh, sort of traumatic event or at least a intense event that happened over your, over your time. Is that safe to say? Yeah, that's, that's, that's safe to say. Um, the, the attack that, uh, you know, you're talking about, you know, that was where, uh, the Taliban drove a 5,000 pound, uh, V-bid truck bomb in, into the camp I was at with, uh, 300 of my guys and they injured 54 of my guys that night. And, uh, you know, that was probably, you know, honestly, I, I thought, uh, you know, I thought I was going to die that night, but, uh, you know, we were able to get through it and then it was just kind of, you know, there's always, there's always something happening there. So, uh, you know, like the, um, uh, when Afghanistan beat India during the cricket game, that was a big deal. And it just so happens that one of my uh, neighbors had a PKM machine gun that is his private, private weapon, I guess. So he uh, decided to celebrate by lighting off the belt on his roof into the sky. And we were getting rounds skipping through our camp and, and thought we were receiving small arm fire from a, another, another attack starting. And it turns out this guy was just a really big uh, Afghanistan cricket fan and real happy about the victory over India. So, you know, I had uh, my marksmen were at asking like, hey, can we take the shot? I'm like, no, I don't think so. I, th I know that guy. I think he's just really excited. We'll just have to, we'll have, to have a talk with the elders, you know, at the next meeting about, hey, let's, uh, let's cut down on the machine gun fire into the air after cricket matches. But it was just, you know, it's just always one thing or another. What's that like for you? Do you feel like, I don't know, your your perspective or your opinion on on the world is is completely different than the average civilian guy like myself because you've been there? Or do you feel like, for the most part, um, the, you know, all of the ideological views make sense for, for the people who hold them? Or what's that like for you kind of being back in the U S now and, you know, hearing all the opinions about geopolitics from people who haven't experienced it. I, I try not in a way, I try not to pay too much attention to it. Um, simply because it's not, it's not the average person or the average American whose opinion that I disagree with a lot of it. And I, and I think this is pretty safe to say for most guys who get over to these far flung, far flung places and, and get their boots on the ground that, you know, the reality when you're there rarely reflects what is being portrayed in the news or by, you know, politicians or analysts. And I don't even really think that that's their fault necessarily, simply since they're not there and they're just trying to, they're trying to understand from 8,000 miles away what's happening. And that's just very hard to do. So it's almost like you have, it's like you have two deviations away from the real event, right? So you have what's happening there on the ground that uh, guys like myself and, and gals are seeing and, and living our lives in. And then you have the first standard deviation away of the media that's that's writing about it 8,000 miles away. And then you have the second standard deviation away when the public get that gets that information and tries to absorb it into make it make sense with their value system and what they're experiencing their everyday lives, you know, around them as well in their community. And so it's inter it's interesting when I come back and I ha I hear people's opinion and you know like it used to like after Iraq that that really upset me when I came back in two thousand three and you know what was upsetting was realizing that you know my friends and I were over there sacrificing and America was just at a country music concert like nothing was going on but you know that was me in my early twenties and now here I am at forty after having a decade overseas to where now it just feels normal. And, you know, I've kind of learned to just think that, you know, people have, people have their own opinions and it's not even their fault that they don't even understand what's going on over there. And in a lot of ways, when you get there, you just realize people are people wherever they're at. You know, everyone's just kind of trying to do the best they can and really just kind of take care of their family. And they're kind of really concerned about, you know, what's happening today in my life and maybe, you know, 60 miles around me. And, you know, it, it's, uh, 
probably the, the biggest thing that helped me overseas was actually coming from a agricultural background because all those guys were all that's all those guys really cared about was farming over there. So, you know, in a way, I kind of wish that more people had the chance to travel and experience the world like I did, because I think they would find that it's actually not that different than being here, the people there. It's just that it's just that when that message gets past 8,000 miles, you know, it's like a game of telephone is what it is. We've imagined and experienced to some extent at, at Essential Craftsman how people from every culture um, respect and recognize not just quality craftsmanship and um, good work, but even like a sense of like a type of camaraderie among tradesmen and just people who work with their hands and, and certainly also uh, high level craftsmanship, um, you know, even from centuries ago, everybody can recognize and appreciate that. Did, did that, did you notice that same thing? I mean, you were working in construction areas overseas, so you were actually, you know, shoulder to shoulder with, with tradesmen and, and guys doing hard work. So is that, is that kind of just romantic fantasy that that's the way it works? You know, that it's sort of like music and transcends culture or, or is it something like that? No, it's, it's very much like that. And you know, what I, what I found interesting was that you'd get a group of guys and they all kind of specialized in one thing. So, and they all worked, they all worked well together. Uh, so, and I, and I think what would happen is somewhere years ago, you know, one of them was able to come to the Middle East and they picked up that skill set. And then they just kind of started passing it down to either their family or friends from whatever village they were at back home. So, and it was kind of neat to see because you'd have these skill set concentrations like within one demographic. And then, but they all became very good at that skill set. So, like my scaffolders were all from Nepal. I have no idea how the Nepalese got into scaffolding in the Middle East. I don't know if it's because, you know, the, the home country is that mountainous and they're just that good with heights. But I mean, those guys, you know, they could <laughs> give, they could give the circus Olay a run for their money. You know, I, I'd, I'd come out there and I'd, I'd tell, uh, you know, Musaf, my, my Nepalese scaffolder foreman, you know, exactly what I needed. He'd take a look and be 80 feet in the air and he'd be like, yes, sir, no problem. We'll take care of it. You know, and then uh, all my pipe fitters were were uh, mostly from the Indian subcontinent. <clears throat> you know, my machine heavy operators were the Sikhs, and uh, you know, and then my electricians and my instrumentation guys were all from the Philippines. But you know, they all they all have they all had their very specific way of doing things, and it was interesting how what I was used to craftsmanship in the U.S like they would be able to accomplish the same thing, but in a different way because they didn't necessarily have the tools that we did in the U.S. But it was very interesting to see. So you grew up in agriculture and rough framing and such. So being on a job site was a familiar place for you, but maybe go talk about that a little more. In what ways was it different? Certainly the tools were different and, and the methods, but did it have the same kind of general feeling? Was there, you know, a sense of... Uh, I don't know if there's camaraderie on big, big jobs, but certainly everybody's in the same boat for a period of time. And so did these, I mean, obviously there's like language barriers among these different, uh, you know, um, tradesmen as well. So what, what was like the overall job site like when you're in the Middle East working with people from 14 different countries? It was probably the biggest job site I've ever been on you know, in my, like in my entire life, you know, because it wasn't just, I mean, cause those natural gas trains, those natural gas trains are almost a mile long. I mean, they're just massive pieces of construction. So, you know, even the part that I was responsible for, so I had, you know, I had about 10 foremen and 10 crews working under me from, you know, nine or 10 different countries. And we were responsible for about a quarter million in deliverables to the client, but that was just a very small portion of that entire job. And everybody kind of had their own had their own section and their own their own work area for what they were responsible for, and it was kind of you know in a way I would say not having a common language kind of binds you all together. So, you know, so so and what I mean by that is all of them would learn English, and what I noticed was my my English actually became worse. Like I started I started just you know because. Uh, you know, it's like if you try to order food instead of being, uh, you know, <laughs> hey, is this takeout? It's like, no, it's takeaway. And I still say takeaway all the time. But, uh, you know, you kind of just form 
you form a yeah. common bond because these guys are from the Philippines, from the Indian subcontinent. And it was interesting. Like I had two Indian crews trying to work together one day and uh, neither, neither one of them could understand each other because they were from different places in India. And I had no idea that there were so many languages in India that I think there's, and I don't even know how many there are. I think there's like something like 30 or 40 languages just within that one country. And so here, here was these two group of guys from India that were having to speak English just because neither one of them could talk to, talk to each other. But so everyone spoke English, but it was just kind of in varying degrees and they'd all give each other different nicknames. And so, and it was interesting seeing the nicknames they'd give each other because they would do it based on how they liked the sound of the English words not necessarily the like meaning behind them. So, you know, you'd run across the guy and you'd be asking your foreman, you know, Hey, who's, who's doing this welding here? And he's like, Oh, sir, that's hot and spicy. I got, I got hot and spicy on that job. And I'd be like, hot and spicy. <laughs> and he's like, Oh yes, sir. That's his English name. And I'd be like, you know, and th this, this guy would show up just wearing, wearing sunglasses under a hard hat, you know, just with this crazy grin on his face, you know, and he'd have hot and spicy with flames on his hard hat. And, you know, and, and I'd be like, all right, man, you know, hey, this is good work. I like these welds. And he's like, oh, thank you, sir. You know, just, and, uh, you know, they would just run with it. I mean, but it would, uh, you know, it was just kind of, it was just a lot of fun. It was just a lot of fun. Can you describe that? I'm going to really show my cards about how little I know about natural gas, but what do you mean the train is a mile long? Maybe start oh, yeah, a big yeah. picture about how natural gas even comes out of the ground. And could you give me a little more context about what, what this actually all might kind of look like? Well, yes, absolutely. So just kind of at the, at the, you know, 50,000 foot view, um, you know, there specifically for Cutter, the natural gas fields were offshore. So they were actually offshore underneath the water. So, you know, they had, they actually had to drill down, tap into the natural gas field offshore. Then they would actually pipe the gas into, into land. And because of that gas that they had there, so natural gas all kind of has, like there's different varying degrees and different types of natural gas. Like some are, are, uh, you know, I'm going to say what they would, what they would refer to as sweet and some are sour gas. And specifically there for Cutter, they had, their gas was a bit sour, which meant it had uh, sulfur in it. And so these natural gas trains, when the natural gas comes ashore in, uh, from the piping in that train, it's basically, it, they call it a train because it's several different phases all stacked back to back to back. So you got, you have raw gas coming in or you have raw sour gas coming in one end. And basically it goes through, I think there's, man, I'm having a hard time even remembering. I want to say there's 10 to 12 different stages that it goes through in this, you know, mile long train, which is really just a processing facility. So like 10 different phases in the process before you get liquefied mm -hmm. natural gas out the other end. And the liquefied natural gas is where they basically, through this train, they, they wow. refine the gas, condense it, liquefy it. And the liquefied natural gas is a state that it goes in onto the tankers. So they didn't just have, you know, the offshore, the piping, hmm. a mile long processing facility. Then they actually built out all the pipelines going to the harbor and they built entire port facilities to load up these massive cargo ships that take liquefied natural gas all over the world. And so the liquefied natural gas comes out the other side, goes into the, uh, hmm. into the tanker. And then the tanker goes to China, to Europe, to wherever that gas is sold. And, you know, the thing about Cutter that was specifically interesting is those guys were vertically integrated. So they owned everything from the gas under the seabed all the way through actually giving physical delivery of that liquefied natural gas at the point of sale, either in Europe or China, and just was, was making money hand over fist. Oh, that's really interesting. So it makes sense. They, they developed these facilities. When you say in a mile, you, you mean literally it's a mile long rather than, Correct. you know, the pipe going back and forth inside one building and taking up a mile. They just kind of keep it in line with the pipe. And by the time it gets to the, uh, the, the loading station onto the trucks, it's liquefied and they just fill them up. Is that, am I getting that? Yeah, kind of. I mean, there's condensers and there's all kinds of different phases. And when I say a mile long, like, I mean, there's all kinds of machinery that, that are in these, in these trains. And I, I mean, I'd, I'd even hate to say like how wide these things are. I mean, it's a mile long and then just, you know, hundreds of yards wide. 
And, you know, they even have some, uh, they even built super trains out there, which are basically uh-huh. two running together. So, you know, when I was there, I think they were getting the fifth train online. And so, you know, when I, when we would drive to work in the morning, it, it was, it was like driving past a forest of cranes out there. I mean, a, qu- a quarter million men went to work every day out there in uh, it's, mm-hmm. it was called Ross Lafon industrial city, but RLIC a quarter million men went to work out there every day. Holy smokes. That's amazing. So now um, let's kind of transition here a little bit. And you, I'm wondering if you have the same problem I do. And that is, I grew up working with my hands, you know, chores with the family and such. And, and our viewers know my dad, he's the epitome of hard work. And so in my mind and in my heart, I, I always feel like that is what work is. And it's sometimes a struggle for me at a computer or working with my brain to, I don't know, feel as, it's not about feeling productive, but I'm wondering if if you have if you work with your hands at all. If you feel like that's something you at this point in your life do or need to do, and if what's that like now? You know, working, writing, and being at a computer more. Um, and I guess there was a transition phase where, as an engineering. But talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So I struggled with the exact same thing. And I would say that I sometimes still struggle with it because, you know, when you grow up with that mindset, so, so, you know, my dad is very similar, similar to yours, you know, very hands-on and, uh, you know, has worked hard his entire life. And something that I struggled with was making that transition from, I don't want to call it work hard, work smart, but at the same time, there is an element of when you're used to working with your hands, when you're used to being productive all day and being able to stand back and said, Hey, I did that today. You know, I went and cleared that field or I went and built that building. You know, I have something to show for my effort today. That's a completely different type of work than sitting down and, you know, hey, I, I need to read a hundred page uh, article on how semiconductors are being brought into the trade war between China and the United States. And that's my job today is I'm going to read this hundred page article and try to try to make sense of that information. And at times it will, you know, at times I still feel like, man, I didn't do anything today when in fact I've been here, you know, thinking and writing and and reading for 12 hours. And, you know, so where, where it really, what really made the difference to me was I had a, a very good mentor uh, when I was in college. So just kind of by, uh, just by luck, uh, him and I met and it's turned into, it's turned into at least a 15 year friendship. I mean, I still talk to him once a week, but he was the one that hmm. was able to really start making me think more on the business side of things as far as, Hey, it's great to work hard, but you also need to think about how to leverage your time and leverage your knowledge and make that, make that transition. And it wasn't, I had a hard time understanding that, okay, if I'm not the one actually going and grabbing those valves and putting that valve in or, you know, swinging that hammer, you know, it's no less as hard or as important of work standing back and being a leader and making sure all my guys that are doing the work have everything they need, they need, and that I'm running interference at, you know, the management level to make sure that they're not having to worry about scheduling or, you know, payroll or anything like that. So I had a, I had a tough time. So my mentor really helped me with that. And then when I got to Cutter and I took over my first crew, you know, I was going to get in the guys, the valves they needed, you know, just jumping in there and working like I was, I was used to doing it at, at 19. And it, it was a, it was a little bit of a painful transition to realize that isn't what my guys needed. You know, my guys, my, cause at the time it was, it was an electrical crew. And then I had a piping crew that, that I, mm-hmm. I ran as well. And it was, I had a hard time understanding at first that that's not what my guys needed. They were doing the work. What they needed was me to help them and support them on the paperwork side to make their life easier. And just to kind of start clearing a runway to where when they were done with one, one, one stage, they were just immediately rolling to the next, you know, and that I had already taken care of all the, uh, of all the coordination with other site supervisors, you know, and just taking care of all that for them so they could just focus on their trade. And once I kind of made that, once I made that mental yeah, click in my great. mind, that's where things really started, started getting easier. But, you know, I don't, I don't know if that ever really goes away. You know, like I'll still catch myself, you know, you know, 18 years onto this, sitting here in front of a computer for 12 hours and I'll stand up and I'll think, man, I didn't do anything today. 
And, you know, that's just not true, but it's just a, I think that always sticks with you. You know, <laughs> if you came, if you came up with working with your hands, like you always just kind of feel if, if you're sitting behind a computer, you just always feel like, man, I didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, time to go for a walk or get outside and, and enjoy nature a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And for, for some people, myself included, I'm lucky to have a, a little sh workshop and a little bit of land enough where I can take manual labor, almost like a hobby. And on the weekend, be like, I'm going to go dig out those sprinklers that are messed up and you can kind of get some of that energy out. And frankly, I remember, you know, when you're a kid working is just pretty miserable and it's, it's like a torture. Basically. I remember every time it was like a work day, it just, I was miserable and my parents just, it was, they're just always so happy doing it. And it was like truly enjoyable for them. And so I'm at that I'm at that point now where working with my body and hands is a great hobby and I I think I'm it's kind of clicking for me that it's that's the best place for it. I'm I'm glad that my Absolutely. my paycheck doesn't rely on my, you know, strength in my back, but it's really a great hobby to have uh working and home repair and these types of things. So it's you know, I'm I'm fortunate in that way, but I I hear you. So Last question, and you mentioned China, and I've asked several people this, and you would be a great one to chime in as well. And I'm wondering if you can just give me and the audience a big picture from your point of view, because there is so much noise about China. And for me personally, I, I, I understand, I, I think, the, the big picture, but I'm always just reminded that I get so many inexpensive goods from China that benefit my life regularly. I don't have any reason to dislike any particular thing about the country that I experienced tangibly and and so that the cheap goods are positive so can you explain from your point of view just the big picture geopolitical struggle and why there's so much noise and how maybe average people should be thinking and and if that differs from the story we're being told from from the media I and I, you know your point of view of course but I would really yeah. be interested okay so you know, so I spent I spent several years in in Asia, and you know, kind of the way that I look at China is probably a little bit different than than most people look at China, or they think of how China is being portrayed. And for me, let, let's start with the math. Let's start with at the very high level with the demographics. Okay, so because uh, I, I think I think the to try to build build a steel man argument for how China's portrayed in the media is that hey, China is a rising superpower. You know they had a they have a third of the world's population. They're they're, num they're the number two economy in the world. They're they're growing quickly. They're they're building energy plants there and industrializing. And they've done an amazing feat, essentially industrializing in forty years and becoming the manufacturer for the world. I don't want to take that away from them, but at the same time, I don't think that growth continues exponentially like it has, which is what I feel the common theme is. Does that seem fair? So yeah. my so my view of it is where I think I differ is having seen Asia firsthand and specifically doing like anti-piracy operations in the Strait of Malacca, which for everyone, for people that aren't familiar, it's a it's a narrow strip of water that connects the entirety of Asia to the Indian Ocean. And so you have from the, if you're coming through from the Indian Ocean, you go through the Strait of Malacca, which at its narrowest point is about two miles wide. And then you come through and you exit either into the South China Sea and then on towards the Pacific. Now, the reason that I'm starting with that and why that is so important to me with Asia is because 80% of China's energy flows through the Strait of Malacca. So, you know, the thing that makes the United States mm. a global power is the fact that we have a naval force that can secure the seas and we can actually secure our own energy needs. For all intents and purposes, the United States is actually energy independent currently with the fracking technology we've developed and how uh, we're able to do productive uh, or domestic oil and gas, uh, oil and gas work. China is never going to be in that position. They're always going to be dependent on energy imports. And you know, I was reading. I was reading uh, several weeks ago how they're expected to actually increase those energy exports by four hundred percent over the next decade, right? So, starting from that position, the reason that I don't think China is a rising power is how can you be a rising power when you can't secure your own energy needs, right? 
Now, secondly, looking at the demographics, so China implemented a one-child policy in about 1980, right? And they did that because at the time, they were trying very, very hard to industrialize. So if you're, if you're a farmer, then kids is free labor, right? You can have four kids because you need that for farm work. Well, once you start putting people in apartments and you say, hey, you're not a farmer anymore, you're going to go be a mechanic in this, in this factory, and we're going, to start making, we're going to start making plastic swimming pools to ship to America. Well, all of a sudden, you don't want that guy having four kids. You want him only having one kid because he only needs one child in an apartment living in the city. Well, unfortunately, what that did, though, when they did that one child policy, mm-hmm. now when you look at their when you look at their demographics, they have, you know, if, if you feel if you're a millennial in America and you feel like there's more baby boomers than millennials, imagine being a Chinese millennial and you're 25 years old and there's twice as many old Chinese baby boomers that are already, all getting ready oh, to retire wow. that you're going to have to support mm. than you. So it becomes a matter of it doesn't matter if there's a third of the world's population. Mm. It's about the ratio of old people to young people, essentially. And for an economy to keep growing, you need mm. less old people than more young people. Because, you know, think about guys that are our age. You know, we're buying cars, you know, expanding houses, you know, buying, buying Christmas gifts for kids. All the things that the baby boomers are not doing now that they're getting ready to retire. So they're, you know, they're saving money. They've bought everything they really need for their entire life you know, and they're not really consuming as much as younger generations. So when I look at China and I see that, I see what that one child policy has done 40 years on now, because all those, all those one kids are now, you know, millennials and in their prime working years, you know, yes, they've done amazing things getting to where they have the last 40 years, but I don't think that growth is eternal. You know, they've, they've kind of, that one child policy has really damaged their internal demographics. And, so how does that relate to the US? I mean then you can then you can start talking a little bit about Taiwan because uh you know Taiwan is is very good with semiconductors specifically and so there are several US companies that do what's called fabulous uh manufacturing with semiconductors in Taiwan and that's where uh they basically do the design work in the US semiconductors are manufactured in China or excuse me, in Taiwan, and then they're shipped to the US or sold to China. China uh, by far imports the most semiconductors uh, from Taiwan. They they account, they get about 38% of their semiconductors from Taiwan. Reason that's important is because China is uh, mm. by far the largest manufacturer of electronics and things like that, right? So where I'm going with all this is you, when you when you really look at it from the top down, you have China that can't secure their own energy imports. They have unfortunately a self-inflicted wound, in, in my opinion, with demographics, because there's twice as many people that are their parents' age now to support, and they don't have any way to they don't have any way mm-hmm. to express their opinion or the fact that they might want something to change because they, you know, they live under, under communism. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when I look at China, you know, mm-hmm. they, they've done amazing things. I enjoyed my time there. The Chinese people have always been good to me. I kind of just feel bad for them though. And I don't think that the, I don't think that the popular opinion of, Hey, China's going to be this, this, this power in the 21st century is really accurate. You know, I, I think there's going to be other places in Asia that are that are going to do very well, but I don't think China's going to be one of them. All right, Radigan. Well, let's change the topic here to investing, and let me sort of at least set the table from my life and my view on this topic. And and primarily over even just the last ten years, it seems like there's been so much chaos. Um, in 2008, I graduated college in 2008, and that was when that you know, all those bailouts happened and the job market crashed. That was, I was paying attention to that. And of course, Bitcoin kind of came into existence right then. And between then and now it's been quantitative easing by the Fed. And even more recently, um, this Robin Hood, not just the, not just the the fiasco and the GameStop uh, assault on hedge funds, but even just the existence of it where we can now kind of invest without paying fees and, and these types of things. And so I have felt for a while, like investing is so, I work so hard for every dollar that I have and I either worked really hard for it or I sacrificed by not spending it. 
and saving it. And so my wife and I have this little amount of money and maybe I'm fearful, but man, it's hard to, for a guy like me to get excited about investing money, um, at least in a traditional way. So that's one thing I really would love to get your opinion on. And I have a feeling our listeners, there's a, a big portion of them that are tradesmen who work harder than I do, who, who probably sacrifice more than I do. And if I feel that way, I'm sure, I'm sure they feel that way even more. So can you talk a little bit about the lay of the land and investing and maybe we'll kind of pivot to how it is that blue collar types or tradesmen or even professionals who are protective of their money might approach it in this day and age when it seems like all the previous rules just kind of aren't relevant, aren't as relevant these days. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I, I know I'm going to have a very different opinion on investing and then uh, most people will. And that's mostly because I would say that I'm, I'm self-taught because similar to you and your listeners with the guys in the trades, you know, when I was overseas, I worked very hard for that money. And the thing, the reason I even got into investing and actually started taking an interest in this was because when I started looking at, at things and saying, Hey, I need to invest. I need to be smarter with my money. Um, I couldn't find a financial advisor that would actually prove to me or show me that what he was telling me to do and how to invest actually worked. And I kind of started thinking about that. And, and, you know, I thought, you know, from doing construction and doing engineering, if I say something works, I can walk out there and I can show you that it works. You know, I can show you the type of, I can show you the designs I do. I can show you that, you know, the, the kind of uh, uh, work I do. And it bothered me that when I had this money that was very important to me, that had come very dearly, you know, when I was trying to do the right thing with it and invest, I couldn't find someone who I thought would watch it as closely as I did because it's my money. And I would say that that's going to be, that was a first realization for me was, was understanding that no one's going to care about your money more than you do, right? It's just, they're just not going to do it. At best, you're going to be able to find someone who uh, tries to be a good steward of that money. And so that led me down this path of, of really trying to set my own financial life in order. And I would say, you know, before even I started investing, I realized that I kind of needed to lay the foundation. And, you know, similar to construction, how it, how it seems like you always spend the most time, you know, doing the surveying, laying the foundation, getting all the utilities put in, then all of a sudden the building goes up, right? And where I'm going with that with investing is what I did, what I realized first was, hey, I need to uh, make sure all my insurance is in place, right? I had to get a good accountant to, to where, you know, I made sure that I was, I was doing the right thing with taxes and being able to maximize the money I was saving there first. And I would say before the first step to me with, for investing was making sure that I wasn't bleeding money out that I didn't need to bleed out. So, uh, you know, the insurance was in place, then had a good accountant to save me money, made sure that my uh, credit was doing well, because that way, you know, there's no difference between making an extra 5% on an investment and saving an extra 5% because you can get a better loan rate if you need it. Right. So did the credit. And then the next thing after that was the emergency fund. And, you know, people have, people have different numbers for me personally, I like having one year and I would say that's mostly just because of how dangerous the job was overseas, right? There was a very real chance that I could be injured and have a very long recovery and be out of work for a long time. So, so, you know, that, that's probably personal for everybody, but, um, you know, I, I built that. I built that first before I even really got serious about investing. And you know, when I was doing all this, it's very easy to feel like you're behind, right? That you're not. You're not ever. You're not that you're spinning your wheels, and you're not really ever getting. You're not getting anywhere because hey, you're not investing, and you're not in the market. But at the same time, what I've what I've looking back on it, what I realized was how important that foundation was because once you have that foundation built, and you have you have that durability in your life, then you can actually start looking outwards and you're not worried about, you're not worried about what happens if the unexpected happens to you. And then you can actually be looking outwards and be looking for new opportunities to 
start putting that money to work. And, you know, once, so, so then once I started looking at the different markets and I started looking at the, the different strategies, um, you know, the, you know, the first one I came across was, Hey, just do, you know, do passive investing, do these ETFs or these index funds and, you know, just dollar cost average in, and the math is behind that to support it as far as, uh, you know, if you don't try to time the market, if you just keep putting, if you just keep putting money in regularly um, into these ETFs, then as the market goes up and you're investing, you're in the market and you slowly, you slowly build your wealth over time. And, you know, for me, I did that for a while. And then I really started taking a deeper dive into how the markets are actually structured underneath. And I think that this is something that, that, uh, you know, GameStop even just recently exposed, right? So you mentioned 2008 and there's a, uh, there's a, a, a very good documentary on it that where they had the prime or they had the key players like Paulson and Ben Bernanke. Uh, they were interviewing them 10 years on. I think it's, I think it's by the Council of Foreign Relations on YouTube. It's called uh, Panic or uh, something like that. But what it does is it, you know, 10 years on, it goes back and it's interviewing these guys who were intimately involved in 2008. And it's them explaining just how close the global financial system came to seizing up because of the of the derivatives and how interconnected the system is with, um, you know, what they call liquidity, which is essentially just the flow of dollars around the world. And, you know, when I started looking at passive investing, mm -hmm. and I understand that people are going to disagree with this, but for me, when I started looking at it, I realized, hey, what's what's enabling passive investing and not being and not timing them not worrying about timing the market what's enabling that to succeed is the fact that central banks continue to bail out companies and continue with what i think is bad behavior as far as bailing out companies who don't have any money on their balance sheet and are poorly run to continue providing this liquidity or the flow of capital into these markets that continues to have these markets go up and, you know, so I remember 2008, I was, I was working overseas when 2008 happened. And, you know, for me, once I kind of started realizing how the financial system is structured like that underneath, that, that was something I, I didn't really want to participate in. I didn't, I didn't want to be a part of that. So um, that actually led me to to Bitcoin in, in 2016. I bought, uh, you know, because because then I was like, well, this is math. You know, I can understand this. So, you know, I, and and it was very risky at the time. I, I didn't really even understand what I was doing. I felt like I was taking a ransom photo, holding up a sign saying for trading purposes only. Um, you know, it was like magic Internet <laughs> money. And but I would, <laughs> you know, but I, but I would say that being able to take that risk like that with 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 capital, the reason I was able to do that was because I had that firm foundation already laid and I knew that, okay, even if I take this risk, the potential reward is, is significant, but there's also, I could lose it all, but that's still going to be okay. You know, I'm willing to take this risk on it. And, you know, I think there's, I think there's things out there that, so what I'm looking at now, specifically with investing, and this is what I would, I would really encourage uh, everyone to do is specifically after 2020 with the pandemic that we've had with how hard hit small businesses have been. I was actually just talking with a, a good friend about this because when you look in the market, one of the primary, uh, one of the primary measures that I kind of like to use just as kind of a yardstick to measure how expensive businesses are is uh, enterprise value to sales. And basically what that is, is it's just taking the total value of the business itself divided by how much revenue the business is bringing in. And you can do this for anything. You can do this for Amazon. You can do this for Tesla. You can do this. If you have, if you have a plumbing business, you can do this for your plumbing business, right? And you can get this ratio. And uh, this friend and I, we were talking about this and we were looking at it. And when you look at the market right now, you know, you're going to be looking at, I, I haven't looked at Apple today. I think it was like eight times, you know, might be, it was like eight times enterprise value to sales. You know, I mean, Tesla was at like 27 enterprise value to sales. And what that means is that ratio means when, when Tesla's at 27 uh, EV to sales, that means that if they took every dollar they earned in 
and gave it to back to shareholders, it would take you 27 years to get all your money back from buying a share in that business today, which they can just never do, right? They got to pay taxes. They got to pay research and development. You know, they have all these massive overheads and, and these costs from just running the business. So, you know, but the reason I like using that is it kind of keeps me sane, right? I can look at that and say, okay, if I, if I buy a share today, it's going to take 27 years to get that back. Well, then you can go and look at local businesses after the 2020, after the year we've had, and you can look at local businesses where that are selling at, you know, one, one X, you know, that you can buy a, a local business for, you know, one to maybe even three on the high end of enterprise value to sales. And the reason that's important is because to me, it doesn't matter if, you know, I'm buying index funds or if I'm buying individual large cap companies in the market, or if I'm buying a plumbing or electrician business that's local, it's all about making the return. And on local businesses, if, if you know, if, if you're able to mm-hmm. buy a local business that's, you know, one or two X enterprise value to sales, well, if you're making a 15 to 20% return on your money, you know, on, on, on the business, you're absolutely beating the market. And plus to me, the, the way I'm thinking about this now is someone whose uh, writing has made a dramatic impact on me is, is a uh, investor by the name of Anthony Deaton. And he, uh, some of his older articles are online on, at the uh, Edelweiss Journal. And he stresses how his focus is on, is on scarcity, durability, and independence as far as when he invests in a business. And that's actually the direction I'm moving to with investing. And that's something that I would probably encourage most people to think about if they want to get into investing, because it takes, it takes, it removes the part of saying, Hey, I need to buy an index fund or, Hey, I need to be in the market to invest. And instead, I think it opens up a lot more opportunities that are around you because then you can say, well, if I'm building houses, I can be aware of an opportunity that someone else might not be aware of. And you're going to have, you're going to actually have, you're going to know what scarcity is because it's in your local area and it's very much in your wheelhouse of competency. You know, and you're going to have the independence if you have that firm foundation laid Mm -hmm. as far as, hey, if I take this risk and it doesn't work out or if there's a downturn, you know, it's okay. My family's going to be all right. You know, we still have that. We still have a year buffer of income. And so I know this is a long drawn out answer, but you know, for me, it was very much making the transition of just thinking of me as a person and, and, and making money in my job and then putting it into the market and almost thinking about myself as my own entity to where I need to have, you know, cash on hand. I have a balance sheet. And when I'm investing, it's very much in evaluating these opportunities and determining where I'm going to be able to make a good return for the risk that I'm taking with that money. I think a lot of tradesmen and myself included, although I don't think of myself, although I'm not a tradesman, but real investing in real estate and in particular rental real estate is one of the first like places that, that guys like me will go in their mind and with their money because they understand it. It's it's, they can put their hands on it. They might have a a bit of a advantage because they can repair it and maintain it to some extent. But what I quickly found when I owned rental properties was just how much work it is. There's nothing passive about it. And when I was younger, I just imagined, oh, you're a landlord, you collect the money and and you can't lose and you got depreciation. But it's just not like that at all. And and maybe that's okay if it's just more of a business than a passive investment. So I guess, and I'm wondering, you, you mentioned investing in local businesses and I've never had an opportunity to do that, but what, what, what does that look like? Is that, is, I'm trying to imagine that, I guess you're, you're kind of investing in people and is there, is there a way to invest in a business or real estate that is more passive or are you talking about, you know, becoming a business owner and being an active participant in the management and growth of, of whatever business or, or how, how can, is there a way to do this and have it be actually passive? Yes. So there's, uh, so something I saw my mentor do was he actually bought into shares of a local bank that was starting up. And that was initially with uh, capital that was uh, put into the local bank and then actually had 
had shares of that business, right? So he gets a he gets a dividend paid every year based on on the profits of that bank that's coming in and the shares that he has underlying in the, in the bank. Um, and then the other opportunity that uh, I'm actually evaluating now that a friend of mine in Texas is doing is he's actually an LP or a limited partner in a real estate fund that you can buy you know, shares of the real estate uh, fund that holds this uh, multifamily property. And this, this isn't specific to Texas, it's all over. And depending on how it's structured, you might need to be a mm -hmm. accredited investor. But even if you're not an accredited investor, um, there are funds out there that you can invest in, but you really have to do your due diligence on who's running them, how they're structuring their deals. You know, I mean, even dig into, you know, how, how much money are they putting forward for repairs, for paying employees, how they're managing these projects. And <clears throat> when you find those, those relationships that, you know, for me that I, I take, you know, I'll take years to evaluate these, right? Because, um, you know, I want someone that is going to be a good decision maker on, on that part of their deal. <clears throat> so those, those opportunities exist. It's just having to kind of find them and then really do, really do your homework on them to make sure that you're not being you're not being sold something that isn't going to be good for you, right? Because there's very much people that are out there that that will take advantage, and it's a it's a matter of finding someone that you trust. And I would, me personally, I focus on the relationship, and I think about it as, hey, is this someone that I think I could trust my life to? Because for me, my money is my life. You know, like I, I had to I had to go through a lot to make it. So. Um, you know, and it's not even about the it's not even about the return or those opportunities that exist for passive income that are out there privately. Is is that person a person of integrity? You know, are they going to make the right decision for me because that's how that's the values that they have, and that's kind of that's kind of what I look for. But those 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 opportunities are out there, mm -hmm. um, and they do exist. It reminds me, you know, when you like buy a new car or truck, and all of a sudden you see that same car and truck like all over the place. You just were never looking for it. I know from my career in real estate that deals and investments do exist um, in the world all around us all the time, but very few people are tuned to the frequency to locate them and to snatch them up when they surface. So almost just, and you're, you're kind of reminding me of this thought, just, just be, being aware of this potential investment type can in and of itself help you stumble into them because you're, you're paying attention and, and communicating this way with friends and family. And, and when you think about something, you know, when it's a part of your thought process, it's just so much more likely to come uh, into fruition. Oh, and I'm reminded another advantage of this. I have a friend who was involved in a rental real estate in a large scale. Um, in I think he might've started in like 2008 or six or something. And from about 2000 in about 2000, 11 or 2012 maybe wall street first realized because real estate prices were you know lower than they had been in 50 years mm -hmm. and wall street kind of recognized we we can't get up there's a, here's this opportunity in the in the country right now with real estate prices so low and we have no ability to invest in that now they have since figured that out and so now wall street is invested in in residential real estate and some big companies like treehouse or invitation homes yeah. and and i think there's others but but the point is some of these small a, a small bank or even like a small cabinet shop or something wall street can't invest in that so you don't have to compete with them because they're they're not able to to get there it, it, it can only be a an individual investor, you know, accredited or not. And so that's an advantage that people should, I don't know, take a little bit of comfort in that, that they can snatch deals up that, you know, bigger, bigger outfits are incapable of doing. I, I actually think that's a strategic advantage that most people don't realize they have, you know, so, so if, if you want to go the passive route and just dollar cost average and not worry about the market, like that's one way to do it. But to me, you're actually giving up an incredible strategic advantage you have as an individual investor if you limit yourself just to that. You know, I mean, you're 
you know, you have a lot more independence if you're, if you're out there just kind of attuned to, uh, you know, what's happening in the community around you and those deals like that. And something else that I've found is, you know, not a lot of people that are doing this, you know, they're not going out there and advertising that they're doing it. You know, they're, they're actually very quiet individuals because, um, you know, I mean, if, when you're talking about money, it's, it's just not something that the guys that are really making money, that's not something they really advertise. And, you know, what I've noticed is that the, the, the further I go in this and the more, the more years I'm doing it, you know, if I'm trying to figure something out, odds are there's someone else that, that is doing it as well. And you just kind of find yourself in the same places with the same kind of people and people that are further down that road than you, that might be, Mm an older generation that, you know, they might have a, they might have an opportunity that they want to invest in, but, you know, they want to bring other investors in simply to, uh, simply to cut down on their risk for that particular deal. And, you know, what I've noticed is that once you find, once you find people you can trust, it very much becomes a relationship game to where as, as new deals come up, you know, then you start getting phone calls for it. And it just becomes it just becomes easier the longer you do it. You've written about your mission in life and and just the mindset of having something uh, as a personal mission. Can you talk a little bit about? See, investing is on the surface not that fun. It's much more fun to buy a dirt bike and spend your money on that. And um, I'm wondering if you could talk about maybe not the fun, but certainly the satisfaction or why should people choose let's say younger guys or our age maybe why why should they choose to sacrifice spend this money and 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 get involved in investing as opposed to a more uh, more fun way to to blow the money maybe the better way to answer the ask the question is there some type of fun or satisfaction or value that you receive from investing that you know makes it worth the effort separate from being wise and planning for your future and all that I would say it's the peace of mind. You know, I mean, who doesn't like going and riding dirt bikes, but do you want to go ride a dirt bike and and take a fall off of that? And then you're, then you're laid up for six months and you can't work. You know, like I've, I've been in the position of, you know, where I racked up 15,000 in hospital bills and I was sleeping on a friend's couch. So, because I I couldn't afford to stay at the Marriott while I was getting uh, my medical clearance back to go back to Afghanistan. You know, like for me, I don't ever want to be in that position again. You know, no, no amount of, no amount of having fun without having like that base established to where I know I can take care of myself financially is, is worth it to me. Um, you know, and, and I think that's something that everyone kind of has to figure out on their own, right? It's going to be, and for me, once I started investing and I started going down this, this route, uh, it very much becomes a craft, you know, just like, you know, just like whether you're doing timber framing or, you know, if you're a welder and you, you take a lot of pride in, in, you know, and how you, and how you lay a weld, um, you know, you know, I think people think of investing as strictly passive and I just, you know, you can spend as much time as you want on it, but to me, it just becomes very much a craft to where there's no end in sight. Like I can do this the rest of my life if I choose to. And I probably will like, I'll, I'll do this. I'll do this as long as I got. And so I appreciate the craft point of it to where it just becomes something constantly to hone something constantly to learn something new. And I appreciate the peace of mind it gives me to where when I do go out and have fun, you know, I'm not worried about one bad day, um, you know, drastically altering my life anymore, which is, I don't, I don't know if I could put a price on that one. I think the federal reserve and the, the, general the mindset around interest rates is so out of whack and people are used to being able to borrow money at three or four or five percent and it has kind of warped people's ideas both about what they can borrow and what that should cost but also what what they should be entitled to receive when they lend it out i mentioned a a hard money loan i was involved into a a friend and i told him the rate was 14% and he recoiled like I was such an idiot for taking this loan because that number is so high and I I kind of put the blame it's not blame it's just the reality that 
the money that the Fed and Wall Street can play with is just so different the money we are able to access. So right. could you talk about that a little bit? Because I don't know if it's a the, the 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 specifics aren't important, you know, like what what do you think is a good rate of return? Obviously not three percent, but maybe maybe it doesn't have to be fourteen either. But maybe from both sides, from from borrowing and lending, and how should we think about return on investment now when, like I said, uh, our mortgages or I just refied or bought a house. It was a purchase, not a refi, and the rate closed at like two point. No, I'm sorry, three point six or something like that. You know, it's just it's it's kind of unbelievable, and it's hard for that not to just change the way you think about what money is worth. Right. So, you know, when you're mentioning the Federal Reserve and the and the interest rates, um, you know, first off, you know, I don't have I don't have any debt. I don't want to have any debt. I don't want to owe anybody money. Um, you know, everything everything I do is just with with cash on hand, and I do that for a very specific reason because, you know, when I look at when I look at what the governments around the world, and it's not just the Federal Reserve, it's all the central banks around the world. When I look at the game that they're playing, in some ways, I, I kind of think of it as a race to the bottom, right? It's a race to the bottom to devalue their currencies, to push interest rates low. <laughs> and, you know, well, and there's a very specific reason they're doing that. You know, the the developed world is getting old. You know, there's it's not just our baby boomers that are retiring. It's Europe's, it's China's, you know, and you know, when you, as you push interest rates low, what, what that does is that forces people to go take risk with their money because they can't make a safe return in bonds. So the government's, the government's doing this on purpose as far as pushing interest rates low to make people get out of bonds, to not, not hold treasuries. And you know what, if you don't like, if you don't like making, you know, 1.6% mm -hmm. in TLT and 20 year treasuries, then you need to go invest in the market and keep that market going higher. And they're doing that because they have to, because these, the baby boomers are getting ready to retire. So the Federal Reserve and the government is very much in tune to what the stock markets are doing and not wanting to have them fall. So they're, they're going to keep interest rates low, in, in my opinion. But unfortunately, what that does for, you know, I'm going to say uh, guys like us that are in our, in our prime working years is it makes it very hard to get a a a, re a return on our money in a way that doesn't involve us actually having to learn finances and actually learn investing and actually start evaluating businesses. And, you know, and, and when you're saying that it almost, it almost changes the way we look at money and the value of money, I, I absolutely agree because people start thinking that, but the way that I look at it is if someone's trying to give me almost free money, do I really want that? You know, if, if money has no value or does or the money has very little value to the government, why do I want to go into debt? Me personally, I don't want to. I want that independence of knowing that knowing that the cash I have is mine and I don't owe anyone else because what that does is that actually puts me in a safer position if there is a change in the business cycle. So, you know, right now the government and the Federal Reserve are very much in tune with the, what the market's doing. They're trying to keep this business cycle expanded. But what I'm concerned with is that if you have a either an inflationary or a deflationary uh, force that acts on this business cycle, what happens then? And I don't want to guess in which direction it's going to go. So what I do is I don't go into debt. I don't use I don't use uh, loans for investments I'm doing, and then I'm also looking at assets that I can invest in that that will do well whether this business cycle continues or whether there are issues that happen either inflationary or deflationary, because I just want to be I want to be in a position that I don't have to try to guess the future and no matter what happens I'm going to be okay, and so but it's, it's hard. It's hard to find, it's hard to find those opportunities and it's hard to think about money in a way that has, that has value because what they've done is they've made interest rates so low. And when you're saying 14% on a hard money loan, like that's, that's about the ballpark. You know, I, I was, I, you know, I, I frequently read about, uh, 
you know, debt deals that they're doing in Europe. And in Europe for real estate, they're doing, they're getting 15 to 20% on mezzanine debt in, uh, in the capital stack for uh, real estate investment. So they, they're, they're getting a 15 to 20% return over one to three years on their mezzanine debt for hard money loan. And they're getting a 25% uh, margin of safety on it, you know, simply because, but it's in those areas where the banks wow. can't get to. So you got to be in the, you got to be in those areas where the banks can't get that free money into. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, your capital has value again, because there's a lot of people that don't have access to that very low, that very low interest rate. Our viewers may know, but I built a storage facility a few years ago. And so I was on the opposite side of this conversation by needing mm -hmm. to borrow money for someone to help me build this. And I can tell you as someone who's, who was there, the, the, the need and the energy from the person on the opposite side of the table, the person looking, needing to borrow to solve this deal or this business deal is those people are looking ferociously as well, fiercely for the investors. And when you, when you find that person and it's, and it links up, it's magic and it's, it's just, it's the way the world should work. And so from the investors side, um, those guys are out there. You just got to find them. And I'm sure there's someone listening to this who may be in this position where who could, who knows if I had $100,000, I could boom, boom, boom. And, and within three years, my business would look like this, but that's a real hurdle. And so it's a matter of those two individuals finding each other. Don't give up. They're certain that you're, you're both out there and uh, keep your eyes peeled. Is that, is that more or less your, what you're saying to us? I guess that's what I'm saying. <laughs> what would you say? No, I, I'd agree 100% with that because, um, you know, in a way, I, I think it really created a, a, a bifurcated market, right? So you have people's expectations that, hey, we can get a 2.9% a interest on, on our mortgage. But then you have the opposite end of the spectrum where there's a whole group of people out there that can't get access to this, you know, nearly free money. And all of a sudden it's like, hey, it's like finding an oasis in the desert where money has value again, but it's out there. Well, um, Radigan, maybe give our give our viewers the overview of um, your website and your writings. We didn't talk about your writing, but maybe to lead into that, just let us know how you got started writing and um, and where people can find that and, and uh, anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners with. Okay, so uh, I got started writing probably about a year ago. I haven't really read anything before about a year ago. And then when I started really getting into investing, uh, I started having to put, put thoughts to paper. Um, one of the, uh, one of the side effects of, of this explosion was, uh, uh, you know, some, some memory loss. So, uh, writing just kind of helps me keep all the dots connected when I'm thinking about things. And so if uh, people want to read more and I'm, I'm kind of, I do, a little, you know, I kind of, focus on things and it's everything from geopolitics to investing to, uh, emotions. I mean, it's uh, psychological. It's just a little bit of everything of kind of what I'm thinking on. And it's at uh, radigancarter.com is where the writing is. And I'm pretty active on Twitter too. So if people are on Twitter, if they got questions, they can feel free to reach out. And it's just uh, at Radigan Carter. Well, that's great. I've, I've, I'm going to be following and reading your blog because it is there is just so much noise. And even just knowing someone who kind of comes from the similar background, someone who understands what it's like to, you know, work in the trade, spend a long day there, value uh, your money at, in terms of even just the labor you put into to earn it and uh, can't can't recommend your work enough. So thanks for taking the time to join us. And uh, and the world is changing fast enough. I'm sure in a year or two, we'll chat again. And who knows what the big next uh, twist would be. But thanks for joining us, Radigan. Hey, thanks for having me, Nate. Look forward to next time.